Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Andrea Williams about her new book, Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues. And joining us as a special guest is Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Andrea, Bob, welcome to That Said. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So this book, Andrea, that you wrote, Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues, is a great read. And what interested me when I first read it was that it is directed at young readers. I didn't realize that um, at the outset. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Yeah, um, my degree is in sport management. And when I went to school, the the plan was to become the first female general manager of Major League Baseball team. And got derailed a little bit, ended up at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum with Bob Kendrick. Um, And I just, I was always, though, still really interested in sports, still really interested in the business side of sport, particularly women that were involved. And I didn't really know a lot of people. I mean, Kim Ang, who's now with the Miami Marlins, was with the Yankees at the time. Um, But the first, my first day, I took a tour with Bob saw a picture of Abe and Effa Manley on the wall and was just immediately fascinated by her story and started researching. And Bob will tell you, I was like, let's do an event. Let's do this. Like (laughs) all Effa all the time. (laughs) Um, And then I left the museum and got married and started having babies, but her story always stayed with me. Um, I knew I wanted to eventually tell it in, in longer form. You know, I was already working as a journalist, but it took me a while to figure out how I wanted to tell that story in which format, what kind of structure, all of that. And I had kids and my oldest daughter always been a voracious reader, but wasn't really into nonfiction. And I'm like, well, what is the problem here? And she talked a lot about how, A, there wasn't a lot of it. B, what existed wasn't really that compelling and not talking about subjects that she would be interested in. So it was really just this kind of confluence of things in that, you know, I wanted to give kids something um, that was, that was important I think that is compellingly told, um, but that also, I think, kind of helps them understand the world in which we live. You know, there's a lot going on right now. Kids ask lots of questions. And I know for adults, when we have questions, we often turn to books. Um, And so I wanted this to kind of serve as one of those books that we could give to kids. It is a baseball story, but it is talking about so much more than that. Um, You know, we're talking about integration and how we did it in this country and whether that was the way to do it. We're talking about a woman, you know, shattering glass ceilings and working in a man's world and doing it well enough to end up in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So just a lot of different things, a lot of different reasons why I approached the book the way that I did. But ultimately, I just want kids to particularly Black kids, young Black girls, to really kind of think beyond how they may be conditioned to think 
Um, I know there are kids that are reading this that aren't into sports, but if there are kids that are reading this that are into sports, I want them to think about owning a team or working in a front office beyond just playing. Um, so yeah, that was that was all in mind. You know, I, I've been in the publishing industry for a while, done some ghost and co-writing, and had seen that you know we if there was a book that sold really well for adults, we, it would be repackaged into a young readers version for kids. And so I wanted to create a book at the outset with kids in mind, but also that adults could really get into as well. I say that this is my Disney approach, right? Like it is a book for kids, but adults will enjoy it and learn from it along the way too. You write in the beginning of the book, or I think it was in the beginning, maybe it was at the end. You write, I wanted to introduce you, the reader, uh, to a story that I desperately needed to hear when I was your age. It is a story of heartbreak and broken promises, but more than that, it is a story of grit and ingenuity and courage and victory. That's a great message to have in a book for any reader of any age. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, like I said, I from an early age thought I wanted to work in sports. Did end up kind of working in sports, um, not not in the way that I thought, but. It, I, it was just the, it was just this natural idea that I had, but I had no idea how it would come to fruition. I had no idea as I was kind of looking for people that were doing it when I was coming up, looking for an example of a woman running a team that a black woman had done it in the thirties and forties. I had no clue. So if I had known that then, would I have stayed on the same path? I don't know. I probably would have still got over there with Bob and then been like, no, I'm good here <laughs> working at the museum. But it just, it changes everything when you know that what is possible. We talk a lot about, you know, seeing in order to believe. And there's so much of our history that has been hidden. So I know for me and other kids, what, how much are we stunting our belief because we just don't know all that we have accomplished? And so, Bob, that's a, a great segue to you because the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is essentially that starting point or middle point or end point of one's education in the areas that Andrea just mentioned. So tell us a little bit about yourself and the museum and why it's so important in this process that Andrea just laid out. I began here at the museum, believe it or not, Michael, as a volunteer way back in 1993. I mean, it's almost amazing to think that it's been 28 years now of affiliation with this great institution, but it began as a volunteer when I was working for the Kansas City Star. I was senior copywriter in the Star's promotions department, which functioned as its in-house advertising agency. And I drew the assignment of promoting the museum's first ever traveling exhibition, an exhibition called Discover Greatness, which, believe it or not, is still touring the country to this day. It is at the Yogi Berra Museum in Montclair, New Jersey, 28 years later. And honestly, I didn't even know there was a Negro Leagues Museum until I got introduced to this campaign effort to promote this exhibition. We had some success with it. This was the summer of 1993, and in the month of August of 1993, this promotional campaign helped draw some 10,000 people to historic 18th and Vine to see this traveling exhibition. Now, you have to keep in mind that at that time, there was absolutely nothing else at 18th and Vine but the Lincoln Building, 
which is where the Negro Leagues Museum's origins began in a little tiny one-room office. And so 18th and Vine, like a lot of urban areas, and I think Andrea touches on this in the book, had been so greatly impacted by the loss of the Negro Leagues. And so essentially, wherever you had successful Black baseball, you typically had thriving Black economies. And so when we lost the Negro Leagues, I'm not sure we understood exactly what we were losing because we were excited about what we believed to be progress. And as I remind people all the time, progress always comes at a cost. But anyway, I, I, I touch base with this, you know, as a volunteer, and I am a baseball fan. And here I am walking into a world that I knew absolutely nothing about. And, and I fell in love with this story. And I fell in love with the amazing athletes who made this story because their spirits is what captivated me. Because to a player I ever met, not one of them ever harbored any bitterness or spoke any ill will toward anyone who may have attempted to perpetrate something against them as they were traveling the highways and byways of this country trying to play the game that they love. Now, did they like the things that happened to them? Of course not. But they never seemingly allowed their hearts to be hardened with hate. Or as my friend, the late great Buck O'Neill would say, hate eats you up on the inside. It'll take you right on out of here. But the other side of the equation was you could not convince them that they weren't playing the best baseball that was being played in this country. The world thought the best baseball was being played in the major leagues, but they knew how good they were. They knew how good their league was. And quite frankly, the major leaguers knew how good they were. And, and so they never lamented this notion of playing baseball with those white players because they did play with, uh, with and against them in countless exhibition games and in Latin America and other parts of the globe. You only saw this separation here in the U.S. So they understood the quality of play that they were doing and the type of athlete that called the Negro Leagues home. But that was my introduction to the story. And, and I just absolutely fell in love with it. And I fell deeper in love as I started to meet the players. And at that point, I just wanted to do anything that I could to assist this organization in its growth because it's very much in a fledgling state at that point in time. And as fate would have it, I, I became the museum's first director of marketing in 1998. And I served in that role until I left in 2010 as vice president of marketing. And then 13 months later, I was being reintroduced as the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So it's an amazing journey in its own right to go from being a volunteer to now trying to lead this great institution and, and walk in the enormous shoes of Buck O'Neill. You cannot feel Buck O'Neill's shoes. You would be almost, you would be naive and foolish to think that you could ever feel his shoes. And I think for a lot of people, they would feel the weight of his shadow looming over them. It could be burdenous for a lot of people. But for me, uh, his shadow protects me. And, and I remind people, I talk to Buck every single day. Now the day goes by, I don't talk to Buck. Now he doesn't always talk back to me, but I talk to Buck every single day. So before we move forward, just for the listening audience, give us a minute on who Buck O'Neill was, because I'm not sure that everyone will know him. Yeah, well, Buck O'Neill, number one, was a great player in the Negro Leagues. 
He joined the Kansas City Monarchs in 1938, had an affiliation with the Monarchs through the 1955 season, was a great first baseman, eventually a player manager, and then would leave the Monarchs to join the Chicago Cubs as a scout. As a scout, he signed Hall of Famers Ernie Banks and Lou Brock and Joe Carter, Lee Arthur Smith uh, to their first professional contracts, just amongst a litany of others that Buck brought to the Cubs. And then he would two break barriers by becoming the major's first African-American coach with the Cubs in 1962. And really, he became the principal voice of the Negro Leagues. His compelling narration in Ken Burns' epic documentary on the history of baseball catapulted Buck into national stardom. Now, he'd already been a star in the Negro League, but he became an even bigger star after Ken Burns' documentary because you had this very charming, gentle man who was telling these wonderful stories to baseball fans, Michael, that they'd never heard before. And he was doing it with a twinkle in his eye and a smile that lit up the screen and America fell in love with Buck. He was 82 years old at that time. And and God blessed him to live another 12 years where he literally gallivanted across this country preaching the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum to any and everyone who would listen. And guess who was along for the ride? Oh, Bob. And and what a blessing it was for me. I guess you could say that I am a disciple now of Buck O'Neill because I get to do the exact same thing, preach the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of, of his museum. And, you know, the work that Andrea has done in introducing an important figure in the Negro leagues to a new audience is so vitally important. It is a tremendous part of what we love to see happen here at the Negro leagues baseball museum. There are no shortages of great characters and great character studies in the Negro league. She picked one of them. And, and who I think is also one of the most amazing character studies in the Negro Leagues in Alpha Manly and brought that story to life. And as a result, there's greater interest in this subject matter. And that's exactly what we want to see happen. So, Andrea, let's use this as a, a segue. Have you tell us about Alpha Manly? Who was she? Effa was many things. Um, I think her her Hall of Fame plaque, she is the only woman inducted into Cooperstown, but her Hall of Fame plaque does a really great job of encompassing, you know, the entirety of her being. So, you know, we, we talk about her in the, in the baseball context and what she did with this team. She fielded a really great team that won the 1946 Negro World Series. Um, she ran the team as the business manager, so she handled all the player contracts and negotiations and did, you know, scheduling of road games and handled PR and marketing. Um, But in order to really understand who Effa was in that baseball context fully, um, particularly as we talk about the integration of Major League Baseball and her efforts to secure fair compensation for Black players that were brought on to white teams, we have to understand who she was before she ever got into baseball. And Effa was, you know, someone who was always rooting for the underdog. I mean, I, I like to think I root for the underdog. You know, I fill out my bracket for, for March Madness and I'm always picking the lowest seeds. So 
I think Eva would have picked the lowest seat. You know, she was always looking around her and seeing who needed help and going out of her way to help them. So she grew up in Philly, graduated uh, from high school and moved to Harlem. And she is in Harlem in the 20s. She is in Harlem during this quote unquote renaissance that only impacted a tiny part of that community. And she saw everyone else who was really still struggling. You know, this is post-Renaissance, post-Depression, um, you know, most most Black people are still, you know, hand-to-mouth, to, hand to just trying to make it, working as domestics. And at the same time, here is this department store that generates the majority of its sales re- receipts from this Black community, but refuses to hire Black women as sales clerks in their most visible and highly paid positions. That was like, um, we might want to work on that. We might want to fix that. So she gets with a group of women um, and they form this committee and end up later partnering with a local pastor and they end up basically staging this boycott. There are some stages throughout the process, but when it comes down to it, you know, it's not enough just to ask, you know, to, to present this proof. They actually have the receipts to show that, you know, so much of their sales are coming from the Black community. That's not enough. The owner still refuses to, to shift his stance on hiring. And so they stage a boycott. Um, the don't buy where you can't work campaign had already been taken off in other cities, it was big in Chicago. And so they really um, were, were influential in bringing that movement to, to Harlem. And eventually she is able to get this, this owner of this department store, Bloomstein's department store, to hire more Black sales clerks. And it's interesting, there's the scene that I depict in the book where she is sitting in the office with him across from this owner, She's she's there, but hadn't really said much beyond this point. You know, she's letting the pastor do the talking. There's an attorney in the room, too. And they are kind of at this stalemate. There's a lot of back and forth and no real movement. And finally, Ethel stands up and is like, if you don't hire them, we care about our black girls like you care about your white girls. And if you don't hire them, what are they supposed to do? Become prostitutes? And it really, it really, <clears throat> excuse me, just speaks to Effa and her willingness to say the hard things, to do the hard things, to hold people's feet to the fire. She she cared very little about what people thought about how she moved. She, want, she was going to do what she thought was right in the moment in order to achieve the ultimate goal, which was, again, to help the least of these. Um, and she absolutely carried that into, into her career in baseball. You know, they, they start her and her husband by this team and from the beginning it's not just about putting a, a, a team on the field and winning ball games it's also about bringing in the community how do we help the working black people of Newark how can we how can we play our our role as ever, as small as it may be to bring attention to the fact that black people are getting lynched across this country all of these things are because she is constantly constantly focused on helping the least of those in her community and so she buys a team with her husband, Abe, in 1934, the Brooklyn Eagles. And I want to talk about her and her team. But Bob, can you give us just a little context about Negro League baseball in the 1930s? What was it that she and Abe were buying into? What was the state of play at that time? Well, 
what you saw was a rebirth of the Negro Leagues because the Negro Leagues suffered like most of the country had suffered during the Great Depression. So it had seen great success when Rube Foster started it here in Kansas City in 1920. And the Negro Leagues, when it lost, is, is a leader. The brilliance of Rube Foster when he dies. And the timing, it was almost a perfect storm. You know, you get this economic downturn. You get your, your, your leader who was, depending on who you ask, was beloved and despised by some uh, because he ran the Negro Leagues like a tyrant. He really did. But the Negro Leagues were flourishing under his watch. And then Gus Greenlee revives this thing after the Great Depression. And so there's this rebirth in the Negro Leagues that was starting to occur. And so they got in at a time when Negro Leagues baseball was kind of regaining its footage. But, you know, Andrea raises a, a really key point because for them, it was more than just buying this baseball team. It was entrenching this baseball team into that community so that that primarily black fan base had something that they could certainly enjoy, feel some ownership in, but would also yield that impact that we talked about earlier in terms of spawning economic opportunities in those communities. And, and that's why we talk about the story of the Negro Leagues, I think, from three key themes, because it, it helps us understand the importance of economic empowerment. And it helps us understand the level of leadership that emerged as a result of the formation of these leagues, all these great black minds that were now engaging in these communities. And ultimately, the social advancement of America, as Jackie Robinson, of course, is handpicked from the Kansas City Monarchs to break baseball's six-decade-long self-imposed color barrier. And so they move into this world of baseball. And I'm not sure Abe was as interested in, in baseball, I think Ephraim might have been more interested in the game than Abe was, but, you know, he had he had some money, he had some influence, and and she had this team that she could actually kind of mold. And, and so, and Andrea touched on it, they had some great talent on that team. I mean, some amazing talent on that team when we started to talk about the likes that she had at her disposal at some point in time my dear friend, the late, great Monty Irvin, Larry Doby, Leon Day, Willie Wells, Biz Mackey. These players are all in the National Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. And then the great Don Newcomb, who I still believe should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. All these guys played for Ephraim Manley, and that's just the superstar litany of players. There was a second wave of players that were dynamite. That was, you know, when we start talking about the likes of Max Manning and some of these other guys who were part of those teams. And so they fielded some great teams. It hurt Buck to the day he died that that team, that 46 team, beat his Kansas City Monarchs because Buck thought he had hit the game winner. And Leon Day, the great Leon Day. And, and Leon Day, Michael, you have to understand, is enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a pitcher. And he was a tremendous pitcher. But Buck O'Neill swore to the day he died that Leon Day was a better center fielder than he was pitcher. But I think he felt that way because Leon Day makes this amazing diving catch to Rob Buck for what he thought was going to be the game winner. And the Eagles go on to beat our Kansas City Monarchs 
to claim that World Series championship. And, and I don't think Andrea Buck ever forgot that. But it has also given us an opportunity to talk glowingly about Leon Day, the great two-way star. So, you know, recently we've been enamored, and rightfully so, with Shohei Yatani over with the Los Angeles Angels for his two-way prowess. And all the comparisons are always to Babe Ruth. But we remind people that those are the wrong comparisons. Yeah, the comparisons should be with the likes of Bullet Rogan, Leon Day. These were two-way players who pitched their entire careers. And they were dominant on the mound. And they were dominant in the outfield. And in case of Leon Day, whatever position he played, except for catching, he was dominant at And so it has given up and opened up the opportunity for us to share those kinds of stories as well. But, you know, there was always great talent there with that Newark Eagle team. And we saw this rebirth in the Negro Leagues, you know, as they were really making their real entry into black baseball. Yeah, you had, I guess, the Pittsburgh Crawfords and the Pittsburgh Crawfords, Homestead Grays. Those were the... Those are the powerhouses, right? Oh, yeah. You had some powerhouse teams. And, you know, you had literally a civil war there in Pittsburgh between Gus Greenlee's Pittsburgh Crawfords and Composey's Homestead Grays. And and, uh, while they were kind of different, they were much the same. They both had money, and they both didn't mind spending money. And so Composey had established a reputation of going and taking other players from teams to fill his team and then Gus Greenlee comes along and does the same thing to Composey. And it creates this rivalry there in Pittsburgh that really was an extraordinary showcase, though, for black baseball. And into this, Andrea, is Abe and Effa Manley's first Brooklyn uh, Eagles and then Newark Eagles. So tell us about the acquisition and the decision to move out of Brooklyn into Newark and uh, maybe as a as a sidebar, what I found so interesting was that in um, Newark, there was an all-white team owned by George Weiss called the Bears. Uh, tell us about the relationship between those and how many times did George Weiss dare to bring his Bears to play against those Eagles? Yeah, the 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 New York market was just really tight, to be honest. It was hard for for Abe and Effa's team that first year that they bought the club to really break out. Um and they had an opportunity to to go a little further south to Newark. Uh, there was a black team there that they were able to merge with. The owner owed Abe some money, probably an old debt when, when Abe was still out in, in New Jersey with his numbers operation. So they, they were able to slide in pretty quickly. Um, and it worked out because, yeah, this this Bears team that was there, um, they were able to, you know, a lot of, most most of these black teams had to rent stadiums from from white team owners and you know in many cases they had to go through a middleman they had to go through a booking agent and so this this deal that they were able to put in place was actually pretty advantageous because they were able to work directly with the owner and get it on record that they would play basically when this team was out of town um 
it still wasn't great. You know, we, we talk about, you know, Bob's already talked a lot about, you know, the economic impact. Um, the reality too, is that, you know, part of the reason why everything fell apart as quickly as it did is because these teams were operating on really thin margins. And a lot of it was because those gate receipts got chopped up pretty quickly. If you're already giving away, you know, five or 10% to a booking agent, then you got to give 20% to the owner of the stadium and all these different things. So, that was certainly the case for the Eagles. They probably had one of the best um, arrangements in all of baseball again because they were able to work directly with um, with George Weiss. But as as Bob alluded to before, you know these white teams knew how good the black teams were, and he was never going to put his team on the field with the Eagles. You know he didn't he didn't want to be embarrassed at his at his own home stadium. Um, so yeah, there was there was that that relationship, but also that distance. You know, when we get to integration, um, and we talk about who was in favor of it and who were against, who was against it. You know, there were plenty of white people in baseball. Larry McPhail uh, with the Yankees who was against integration because he said, "Look, we're making money off of these people," mm-hmm. and he understood that integrating would probably kill the Negro leagues. Like that is the most fascinating part about it to me. Is like the black people were like, "I don't know, I think we'll be fine." And the white people were like, no, this is going to kill this extra $100,000 that we're bringing in a year just from renting out Yankee Stadium. Clark Griffith, who never signed a Black player, but was going all the way to to the Caribbean to bring Black players in, was willing to fight tooth and nail to support these Black owners and help keep the Negro Leagues in in existence because he, too, was making money. He was making probably more money from renting the stadium to the homestead grades than he was even for selling tickets to senators games. So all of that into consideration, you know, again, Abe and Effa, you know, they, they were operating within, you know, the constraints of, of black baseball where black owners for the most part, you know, didn't own their own stadiums. You know, there were a few examples, Gus Greenlee, who is my pick of Bob mentioned Don Newcomb, who should be in the hall. I am Mm -hmm. Gus Greenlee all day long. He should absolutely be in the hall. You know, at one point he built and he financed and built his own stadium. He was also uh, responsible for helping to bring about the, the East West all-star game. He was really that lead force that, that led to that second Negro national league that brings about this resurgence in black baseball that Bob already touched on. So. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the point that, that Andrea raises, and it's one that I share are quite frequently anytime they say it ain't about the money it's it's always about the money (laughs) it's it's always about the money and and larry mcphail who she mentioned is a great example we several years ago michael acquired a letter that mcphail who was the managing partner of the new york yankees had written to mayor lagordia And Mayor LaGuardia, like a number of folks at that time, were all getting on this bandwagon of addressing Major League Baseball's kind of asinine hiring practices that they needed to open their doors to these black players uh, because you had all of this talent and they weren't being allowed to play in the Major Leagues. Well, McPhail writes this letter to Mayor LaGuardia, basically, as Andrea mentioned, outlining why this is not a good idea. And, and he would. He would say some things that actually made sense. For instance, as, as Andrea mentioned, he would say, if we sign black talent, we will put the Negro Leagues out of business. And he was absolutely right. 
But then in the next voice, he said, you know, they lack the faculties to play in our league. Now, I don't know when you had to become a Rhodes Scholar to play baseball, but that was the prevailing belief in the minds of many was that we weren't smart enough to play in their league. But then he really does get to the crux of the situation. And as Andrea mentioned, in 1945 alone, because that's when this letter was written, the Yankees made over $100,000 off Negro League, renting their ballparks. And uh, they were getting a percentage of the gate and likely all of the concession. And, and so they were in no hurry to give up that revenue. This is, you know, $100,000 is pretty good money today, but $100,000 in 1945, that's a lot of money. And Michael, you didn't have to do a doggone thing to go get it. You basically sign your name on the dotted line. So no, so the is no is no coincidence that the Yankees were one of the last teams to integrate. They were fighting this to the bitter end. And, and and again, she mentioned Clark Griffith. Clark Griffith was watching Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson do amazing things in his ballpark. And yeah, he had kind of purported the, the notion of wanting to sign them. It was not going to happen because he's also watching all these black folks come into his ballpark. They were outdrawing the senators. So he wasn't going to give up that revenue when you could have it both ways, even though if he had been bold enough to sign Leonard and Gibson, it changes the fortune of his Washington senator team almost instantly. But he wasn't going to do that. So again, whenever they say it ain't about the money, it's always about the money. <laughs> right. Is it? Isn't it? Is it? Wasn't it Jackie Robinson who said later on in life after he stopped playing? You have, I think, a quote in, in the book, Andrea. He says, "Business people, and I expect he's talking mostly about white business people." He says, "Business people can dig black power as long as it gets along with green power." Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting too, and I actually wrote about this for the New York Times. Um, Jackie Robinson Day of last year, but you know there were there were all of these voices. And I think Bob spoke spoke to this at the beginning of the call, and that you know I, I think we didn't know what we didn't know. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about Wendell Smith, and he's pushing, 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 and then it's like, oh wait a minute, I pushed too far. Maybe how do we backpedal a little bit? We didn't know <laughs> what we didn't know, right? Like we can talk about how we move through spaces now in 2021. How do how do we integrate? How do we how do we go about getting black representation? <laughs> we didn't know what we didn't know, and I say a lot of times that black people actually got what they were asking for, which was really just to have a black player play for like that was really all we ever asked for and we got that i don't think we understood fully what those full ramifications would be and it just so happened that the people who were maybe speaking about that and maybe trying to give us a heads up were also the people who would say stuff like well yeah they ain't really that smart and now nah, i'm not gonna stop <laughs> on buck winter so you've got you've got these dissenting voices, right? Branch Ricky looks like the good guy because he's yeah. going to sign a black player, even though he's never going to pay for him. He is going to effectively, in his efforts, help to tear down the Negro Leagues. 
he's the savior and McPhail and Clark Griffith, who actually probably were making more sense at the time in terms of the preservation of these businesses, in terms of looking ahead decades down the line, the long-term impact of this, they probably were closer to how we needed to be moving. But who's going to listen to these guys? Because they said we were stupid. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there, you know, I, I've always believed that there was a level of diabolicalness in Ricky. Yes. Ricky's, I, I, you know, and this has not been tested and proven true. It's just my thought was that I think Ricky's plan was to basically destroy the Negro League. And he was going to do it by raiding it of his star talent, as Andrea mentioned, without compensation to the owners. Because what he did to J.O. Wilkinson was a crime and, and there was nothing jl wilkinson could do to stop it and, and so michael when you look at and, and a lot of people don't there are five guys who go up to major league baseball in 1947 we remember jackie because mm-hmm. the story's been so well documented mm-hmm. but we sometimes have a tendency to forget larry doby hank thompson willett brown and dan bankhead they all go up in 1947. So as next year we look at the 75th anniversary of the integration of our sport, everybody will likely be focused on Jackie. We will focus on all the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers. Three of those five came from the Kansas City Monarchs. Yeah. So J.O. Wilkinson was stuck between a rock and the proverbial hard place. He, he, was he was he the owner. He was the owner. He was the owner of the Kansas City Monarchs, and he was a white owner of the Kansas City Monarchs who made his living in black baseball. This white man can't stop this movement now because that black fan base was not going to have that. This white man who had made his entire living in black baseball. If he's the guy that ultimately is the one that stops, as Andrea mentioned, Essentially, what every black person on the face of this earth, and certainly in this country, have been waiting for, for a black man to play in the major leagues. And he damned if he did. And he was going to be damned if he didn't. And he sold his interest to his business partner, T.Y. Bear, the year after Jackie takes the field with the, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Because he knew the business of black baseball, wouldn't matter if, it was simply a matter of when, it was going to die. And, and I think back to all those great black writers who was pushing this initiative. They were pushing this agenda. And, and in many ways, it was against their own best interest. But yeah. that is the sacrifice that we talk about. That is the cost for what was deemed progress. And again, Andrea touched on something that I think is very significant. We got what we were asking for. See, but we were asking for integration. That was the wrong thing. We should have been asking for equality. And that's what we're still searching for to this very day. Mm -hmm. And we quickly found out that the two are not the same. Right. I mean, I think I think that was what Effa was trying to push for, right? Effa was, how can we figure out a way so that the Negro Leagues become a minor league affiliate? How can we bring in whole teams, whole leagues? But to the point about, you know, Branch Ricky being a little diabolical. (laughs) <laughs> Again, if we're talking a lot of diabolical, <laughs> if we're talking about Effa and the fact that we got to understand who Effa was before she comes into baseball in order to stand under 
in order to understand her full impact. We have to do the same with Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey didn't just hop onto the scene when he goes to Brooklyn. He built in St. Louis this powerhouse club by formulating what we now know as the modern farm system, which says, let me pay little or nothing for these guys send them through our minor league system, work them up. And then if we keep them great, if they fit into our system, if not, we can make all this money by selling them on the open market because we they didn't have the money to buy players on the open market. This is who this guy is. I know how to build a dynasty on little dollars, okay? So he's not doing it any differently when he gets when he gets to Brooklyn. He also gets to, gets to play, to Bob's point, on the emotions of the Black community. <laughs> Yeah. I'm getting ready to go in here and move how I want to move. And I know they can't say anything. And it's diabolical, particularly now. We I think we I think we should be talking about this more. I think we should be looking at it more because now, as Major League Baseball says, we've elevated the status of the Negro Leagues. Now we need to go back and talk about that again because now he stole from a major league team. You know, Branch Ricky was all in the press. Well, you know, they're a racket and I don't really know how they're running their teams and all that other stuff. Well, now, according to Major League Baseball, these were Major League caliber teams that he stole from. So now we need to read. <laughs> I think we need to have a whole new conversation about how he was moving in terms of integration. Yeah, maybe restitution. Well, and, and you think about you think about this, Michael. Major League Baseball was getting this star talent for literally pennies on the dollar. Now, in Ricky's case, he lost Jackie Robinson with no compensation. And uh, eventually, this, this, can you imagine getting Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella for essentially $10,000, $15,000? I mean, literally pennies on the dollar. And, and, and so these major league clubs eventually benefited from this black talent, but what ultimately happened, it just put the older black player out of work because the Negro leagues weren't interested in them because they couldn't sell them. And the major leagues weren't interested because they were too old. And, and, but the stars that they got, these were superstar players that they got for pennies on the dollar. It's interesting. Uh, you write Andrea that, he Branch Rickey, and I think Branch Rickey comes off as evil as he actually was in my in my estimation. I, I think I can say that he, he's this hero in the black community, and you have these movies with him being the hero in the black community. But you write, and I, I've done some research on my own, that he really had no respect whatsoever for Negro League baseball. He didn't think they were really leagues. They weren't really an organization. He had no respect for the the peop, the, the men and women who built these teams, which is why when he takes Jackie Robinson, he pays the monarchs that where he came from, uh, nothing, nothing, zero. Um, and it's an interesting compare and contrast because Bill Veck, who signs Larry Doby, so for the listening audience, Jackie Robinson integrates the National League. Um, seven weeks about later, Larry Doby integrates the American League on the Cleveland Indians team. Bill Veck pays $15,000 to Effa Manley as she demanded from him. Demanded. You can't do this to me, she says. You cannot do this. And I'm giving you him for nothing. 
$10,000 plus $5,000 if he sticks with the team, that's nothing because a white player would be worth $100,000. She demands that of him. But at least Vec has the good sense of fairness to, to pay for the players. Whereas Branch Rickey, no respect for the league and his stealing of, of Robinson. I think you wrote, uh, Andrea, that, that the first year it cost the Newark Eagles $22,000 in gate receipts once Jackie is in, in Major League Baseball. So maybe you can talk about this a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, to go to go back to to Bill Veck, I mean, yeah, it is a matter of respect. In his in his memoir, Bill Veck is in wreck. Bill Veck talked about in 43 wanting to put together a black team and he wanted to field an entire black team in Major League Baseball. Um, and he kind of alerted uh Kennesaw Mount Landis to his plan a little too early. And he put the kibosh on that. But but yeah, he 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 definitely had a level of respect. Now I think when he calls Effa, um I, I think Effa was absolutely vocal about what Larry Doby was worth. Um I think she was also pragmatic enough to know that she couldn't quite demand too much because he was as good as gone. You know, we'd seen everybody else go. So I'm gonna try to get what I can, but I think she knew better than to push that envelope um too hard on that. But yeah, it 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 really the they fell off the cliff early. You know, we're talking about you know even going back to Bob saying you know the the Yankees make a hundred thousand dollars by renting the stadium to to black teams and all you got to do is sign on the dotted line. This is this is a different era of baseball. There is there there are no merch sales. There are no TV deals. Like you live and die by gate receipts. So for East Coast teams like the Eagles. When the black community gets up and says, all right, I can maybe only go to one game this week, they want to go see Jackie. They're not going to see Jackie and going to see the Eagles. And then again, the Eagles can't offset those costs. And again, they're already operating on such tight margins again, because they are, she's having to kick a portion of her money over to George Weiss and George Weiss, because all he's doing is signing on the dotted line. He's not even making sure she has ushers and ticket takers and concession work. She got to pay for all that too out of her little bit of gate receipts. So it happened really, really quickly. And, you know, again, I, I don't think we knew what we didn't know. Like they just had no idea what was going to happen. And certainly not as quickly as they did, but you know, this was, this was an off hands on deck effort. You know, Wendell Smith, it started in 39, you know, polling teams that came in to Pittsburgh to pay, to play the pirates, asking the manager, asking um, the players, how do you feel about, you know, black people being in the major league? So this, this had been an ongoing thing. I mean, this, this dude was, and not just him, you know, Sam Lacey, other, other reporters were, were spending quite a bit of time talking up integration. So the black community was ready for this. They were ready. Jackie gets signed. Jackie's playing for the Dodgers. They are gone, and it's it, it falls apart very fast. <laughs> yeah, we, we 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 talk about it from the standpoint that for black folks, Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier with Brooklyn was equivalent to Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. It may have been even more euphoria than that. And, and you test about Larry Doby. Larry Doby was essentially Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, right. Buzz, Buzz, Buzz landed on the moon too, but he gets no love. And, and yeah. Larry Doby gets no love. He did the exact same thing with just a few weeks after. But that's the way we are as a society. But I remember hearing Monty Irvin talk about the immediate impact 
of Robinson signing with Brooklyn and joining the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that black fan base that had been so loyal to the Newark Eagles, that fan base in large part went over now to go watch Jackie. And that black fan base went over to start watching Larry Doby because there is a sociological aspect to this that is far deeper than this old feeble mind from Crawfordville, Georgia could ever discern. But when you've been kind of, is not been embedded in you that what the others have is better than what you have, well, you naturally want to see this. So there was this natural curiosity of how our stars would fare once they got the opportunity. And, and, and so that black fan base left the Negro Leagues and Andrea's right. There's not enough disposable income within the community to support two of them. And, and those white owners who had been kind of anti-integration, they did understand that aspect of it. Yeah, now the other thing that may be associated with their mindset was far off base, but they did understand that they were going to put the Negro Leagues out of business, and that's exactly what happened. And, and, and so, you know, that's why the story is so interesting and it's so layered in, in so many respects. And that's, again, why I get excited about a project like the book that that Andrea has written on Ephraim Manley. And I think there are so many other stories waiting to be told. I hope that the Ephraim Manley story will eventually make it to the big screen. You know, the late great Penny Marshall had announced that she was going to do this. And now I've heard that there's another, you know, effort to bring this into some kind of cinematic portrayal, because as we talk about here, you don't even have to make this stuff up. It's too good. You just tell the truth. <laughs> the truth in these cases are far better than fiction. <laughs> no, that is, I, and I've answered that question a lot just in terms of structuring it. It reads like a novel. I'm like, yeah, because these people was crazy. And you got all these characters <laughs> and it's so much drama. And yeah, all you have to do is look in the, his, in the, in the archives, like just pull up the newspaper records. That's just, it. Just, That's just it. tell the story. It, is, tell the it, story. it follows a beautiful three act structure all on it. Oh, <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah. But no, I want to just to speak to this idea that what the other people have, you know, is we were conditioned for that. You know, that was kind of one of the things as I was asked about how I personally felt about the major leagues, um, you know, elevating the status of the Negro leagues. And, you know, there were a lot of people, you know, black people, journalists and, and baseball experts who were like, you know, well, we knew this all along and, you know, we didn't need this. And I'm like, actually, I think we needed it. <laughs> I think I think we needed to know, even as we've looked and said, yes, oh, I I know these teams are good. As the player said, yes, I know I am as good as that guy over there. Um, I think it I think it is important, and you know, I kept this in mind in, in writing this book for kids. I think it's important to understand that when we develop our own systems, that they are on par. Sometimes we, even as we acknowledge the skill and the talent that we have, we still don't feel that it's fully validated unless they are doing it with them. And I think that's fine if they are going to deal properly with us. And Major League Baseball didn't do that. So I think we certainly, a lot of this fallout is because there was that overarching idea that, hey, well, we haven't really made it. 
until we've gotten over there where they are. And that's not just the press. And that's not just the fans. There were some players too that felt like, all right, well, when am I going to get my call? Like what I'm doing over here is fine, but I really want to go over there because that's how you know that you've made it. Yeah. And it's interesting because through the barnstorming days, Satchel Paige is, I think, getting the better of Bob Feller for much of it. And, and, and the Negro League teams that are playing are doing just fine, thank you, mm-hmm. against the white counterparts. But they're never viewed as, as, as equivalents. And, and I think that's the exact point, that we have to play on their playing field, if you will, and, and equal or beat them on their playing field in order for us to be respected for our mm-hmm. talents. And no, that's, that's, that's exactly the case, because for years people were saying, well, the Negro Leagues, really kind of invalid because we don't have the stats. We don't have the stats. You needed to have the stats because this is a beautiful game of comparisons and statistics. So now you get the stats and people will say, now they'll dive into that and say, well, you know, that was still against lesser competition and we're just not. So it's never enough and it will never be enough. You know, that's just the unfortunate nature of what we deal with when we dealt with a segregated society. So no matter how good they were, and we talked about this early in the show, no matter how good they were, no matter how many times they beat the major league teams in head-to-head competition, no matter what took place when they were playing on the same teams, there was still this belief, this perception that they were inferior because they were playing in this league that wasn't the major leagues. And, and, and that's something that even to this day, we still have to kind of deal with and try to address because there are just those who will forever believe that if it didn't happen in the major leagues, then it didn't happen. And, and this museum and efforts like Andrea's book are here to tell you that it did happen. And, and it happened with the level of of glory, uh, a level of pride and passion and courage. Because when we look at, and and people love to compare, and I understand that, that's the nature of sport. No major leaguer ever had to endure what these Negro League players had to endure. To go out and perform at the level in which they performed under some of the most adverse social circumstances imaginable you know, sleeping on the bus, can't wash your uniforms. You don't know where you can stop to get something to eat. But no matter what those hardships were, when you rode into that town, the people there said, we heard you could play. We want to see a show. And they never disappointed. They gave you that show. You talked about Satchel Page barnstorming across this country. And, and when he was doing so, he was drawing crowds you know, the entire towns would shut down to watch the old man do his thing. And uh, all of this talent was stifled in some regards. Although, again, my pet peeve is, and I know people mean well, they'll say it's a shame that no one saw these great players play. No, there were a lot of someone that saw them play. <laughs> they just happened to be black. Right. And, and it's a shame that uh, so many in mainstream America missed them playing. Or again, as my friend Buck O'Neill would say, don't feel sorry for me because I didn't play in the major leagues. Feel mm-hmm. sorry for the people who didn't see me play. And they and are the ones and, who missed out. 
And Toni Morrison will say, we the mainstream anyway. So, <laughs> so sad. Y'all missed it. <laughs> so integration kills the Negro Leagues. In no small measure, we see it in Etha's uh, attendance in 1946. She's drawing 120,000. 47 when Jackie is, is and Larry Dolby is signed. She's at 57,000. And in 48, she's at 35. Thousand, so a very precipitous drop, and she gets out of baseball in 1948. Right? She she sells her team. There's still a there's still a fledgling Negro American mm-hmm. League, right, mm-hmm. uh, Bob, mm-hmm. in the in the Midwest. Uh, yeah, right? yeah. Because the Eastern teams were the ones that got hit hard. Right. The Eastern teams got hit hard. The Midwestern based teams, you know, they weren't surrounded by major league cities, so you know you would have to go to St. Louis in order to get near a major league team or Chicago if you were here in Kansas City. So the Monarchs were still able to hang on, you know, but they, they knew they were hanging on by a thread. They, they, they knew that. But those Eastern-based teams got hit immediately. Uh, because, again, those are urban communities in large part. And, and so the fascination of these Black players now playing in the major leagues, that was something that they had to see. And you got to remember now, you still had these colored-only sections in these ballparks. And Black folks were filling those areas up. And then there were thousands more outside trying to get in. You know, until, you know, eventually somebody said, wait a minute, we're turning away money here. We better open up the stadium and let these folks in here. <laughs> hmm. and, and, and speaking of that, Andrea, you, you write, FSL sells the team um, in 48 to the Negro American League. But you write, and I want you to just talk a little bit about Monty Irvin, because we mentioned his name, but I don't always believe that people know their mm-hmm. history. So you write, um, the money paid for Irvin was a justification for all the fighting, speaking out, going against the grain. And it was a validation of Effort's very presence in an industry that was kind neither to women nor black people, and certainly not to those who dared to be both. So can you flesh that out for us a little bit? Yeah. Um, the Monty Irvin deal, Effa, you know, she, her and Abe knew they were done. They, they'd held on as long as they could. They said that they'd lost upward of $100,000 uh, while, while in the release baseball. And on their way out, so they, they've already sold the team. Monty Irvin gets a call from Branch Rickey. And Mon- Monty Irvin, just to stop, he's he's their star at this point. He is their star. Yes, right. he was their star. He gets a call from Branch Rickey, signs a contract with Branch Rickey, and Effa hears about this, and she had sold this team on the condition that they would still have a roster. And so she immediately, there, there was also a deal in place that if any of the players were purchased by a team that they had, they were going to split the money with the new owners of the team. It was a couple businessmen uh, out of Memphis. And, you know, she hears about this deal. And finally, cause she's on her way out, blow it, blow it up, burn it all down. So she brings in an attorney and is like, this is not going to work anymore. She has them reach out to Branch Rickey and says, no, Monty Irvin is still under contract. We are out of baseball, but the Eagles are still a team. And so finally she is able to publicly push back against Branch Rickey in the way that I think she always wanted to. Um, At this point, there's no reason not to. So she does, he releases 
um, Monty Irvin from his contract. And immediately she gets the backlash that, you know, we kind of alluded to before when Brand Tricky signs Jackie Robinson and doesn't pay, play, pay the Monarchs. You know, there's this understanding that I can't, if I'm J.L. Wilkinson, I can't really say anything about this. I don't want the Black people coming to my door. And when she does this, when she essentially inter- interrupts his new deal with the Dodgers, the press, even Monty Irvin, is pissed. Like, mm-hmm. this is my opportunity. What is happening here? But she is able to get him a deal. She she puts in some calls. The Yankees, as as Bob says, they not happening. But the but the Giants were absolutely willing to pay um to to bring him on board. And she got five thousand dollars, so far less than she got for Larry Dolby. But that is what really kind of sets this precedent that now for these teams that are on their last leg, if they have some talent left over, they can sell it. And we are going to require that these major league teams pay at least five grand for them. So she's so she speaks in the in the book that she wrote that, you know, she heard from some other owners that, yeah, they were at least able to get, you know, $5,000 for some of their remaining talent that they had left when they were on their way out the door. Um, It wasn't enough. $5,000 $5,000 for Monty Irvin no, is no, not enough. No, no, no. Hall of Famer. I mean, it is not even close to enough. But I think I think for Effa, it was kind of that last stand. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, this this effort to say, listen, I already know what you, you're going to do what you want to do. And you're not going to do right by me. But just be clear that I'm not happy with it. I'm going to say something about it on my way out the door. Yeah. yeah. And, and Michael, you have to understand that Monty Irvin was a superstar player in the Negro Leagues. The Negro League owners, not that they were advocating for integration of the game because this was their business, but the Negro League owners said that if someone was going to integrate baseball, it should be Monty Irvin. Monty Irvin had the exact same pedigree that Jackie Robinson had, but he was a much better baseball player than Jackie Robinson was. There was nothing that Monty Irvin could not do on the baseball field. I I say all the time, if Major League Baseball had gotten Monty Irvin when he was 20, 21 years old, Oh, they would have seen a far different. They got Monty when he was 30 years old, and Monty was still a very good baseball player in the major leagues. To give you an indication of just how great Monty Irvin was, the legendary Roberto Clemente idolized Monty Irvin. A young Roberto Clemente wanted to be Monty Irvin. Monty Irvin, while playing in Puerto Rico, and Roberto Clemente Jr. tells the story of how his father, would carry Monty Irvin's uniform to the ballpark. Now, if you carried the player's uniform to the ballpark, they let you in the game for free. And that it would be Monty Irvin that would give his father his first real baseball glove. And that his dad wanted to be Monty Irvin. And it reminds us that every hero has a hero. And for a young Roberto Clemente, it was the great Monty Irvin. But Monty had served in World War II Monty was college educated. Monty had movie star, good looks. He had superstar written all over him. And, and, and again, not to disparage Jackie, because Jackie's one of the greatest athletes in American sports history. Baseball was Jackie's weakest sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he turns himself into a Hall of Fame caliber baseball player. Monty Irvin was a flat out star, you know. And so could Monty Irvin have been the first? Absolutely. Yeah, he had the same makeup. And and so, but, you know, Monty had gotten back from World War II, was suffering from what they then called shell shock. Today, we call it post-traumatic syndrome. 
And of course, we was having some contract squabbles with Mrs. Manley. Mrs. Manley was not, she was not a fan of Brad Ricky, to put it politely. <laughs> well, with good reason. And with good reason. And, and I think when she sold Monty to Ricky's arch rival, the New York Giants, it was kind of her way of sticking the dagger and turning it a little bit. And, and as we know, she bought a, a, a mink coat. With the- <laughs> she bought a little stole that she <laughs> as she does, probably wore a strand of pearls. <laughs> yeah, so I think it was a way of her kind of like, you know, I'm gonna get me one last dig right. before yeah. this thing is over with. And she'll she'll go watch the Giants beat the Dodgers wearing that thing stole. <laughs> so we're coming to the end, but I, I wanted to ask each of you, if you will, to, to respond to one thing that I want to read to you. Bob, I'll read you one. And then, Andrea, I want to give you the final, final word because we're here talking about this wonderful book that you've written. But, Bob, you wrote or you said upon the reopening of the museum post-COVID, that it's needed now more than ever because you need to see the pain that African-Americans have experienced, but you also need to see their successes. So I'd like to use that as your closing argument. And then, then, Andre, I'll ask you another question, okay? and, And, Michael, it wasn't just coming out of COVID when we reopened. It was also dealing with the George Floyd murder. And uh, the museum uh, became a tremendous resource uh, as a hub of play of a as a hub where these deeper conversations as it related to social justice uh, was starting to to emanate. And, and I was really proud of the fact that people started to understand that this museum is a civil rights museum. It is a social justice museum. It's just seen through the lens of baseball, but more importantly, it is triumph over that adversity. And so the passage that you just shared was relating back to the fact that I don't want the only side of my journey toward equality in this country or citizenship in this in this country to be the downtrodden aspect of my life. Those things have been well documented. You've seen us enslaved. You've seen us trying to move through the civil rights movement and being sprayed by water hoses and the police dogs released on us and the police brutality that still manifests itself to this very day. But my success stories have rarely ever been talked about in the annals of American history. So you might be able to empathize with my struggles, but you can't relate to them. But you can relate to my success stories. To me, that's where commonality comes into play. If the only images you see of me are painful images, that's not the image that I want you to see. I want you to see those success stories and the Negro Leagues are one of those great American success stories. And it's based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you. I create my own. It's just that, that plain and simple. I create my own. And when you stop to think about that, That is the American way. So yes, America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, but it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. But as we said in in a former film that we used to run here at the museum, and it was narrated by former CNN anchorman Bernard Shaw, 
And in the film, Bernie Shaw says, you might say that the Negro Leagues were so good that they put themselves out of business. Mm, it's a great quote. <laughs> so, Andrea, the final thing I want to read to you, and it's sort of like a valedictory of, of what you wrote. You wrote, Effa loved baseball to be sure, but it was more than just the crack of the bat and the thrill of triumph that drew her to the game. She saw the Negro Leagues as a vehicle to transport the Black community to a position of equality in American society, to provide jobs and financial stability where they were sorely lacking, to give Black boys and girls regular opportunities to witness victory when so much of their lives were mired in defeat. Yeah, I mean, I think this really piggybacks off of off of the passage that you read to Bob that he just commented on. I mean, again, this is a book that I initially wrote with kids in mind. I'm so happy that adults are reading it and responding well to it. But it is for kids because I have seen a lot of the literature for kids. And I'm like, I don't know that the kids know that there were black people in this country between, you know, 1865 and 1965. What were the black people doing? And yeah, we, there was always so much to deal with, but, you know, again, to Bob's point, we were, we were doing great things. This was the story of the Negro Leagues is a story of triumph. It is a story of victory. It is a story of resourcefulness and resilience and all of these things that we need kids to understand. It also, again, helps us understand what is happening now. If we, if we're looking if we're drilling down again, I think this is a larger story that says so much about society on the whole. But even if we're talking about baseball, if we're talking about well, where are the managers and where are the owners, this story helps us understand that there is precedent for everything that we're dealing with right now. And this story, as much as it talks about the victory and the triumph is also a story about how we got here. Yes, we were prevailing. We didn't just accidentally get in this position. You know, we were always trying this notion of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We've been doing that. So this book talks about all of that. And I think Effa understood that. Effa understood that some of these players might get called. They might get to make the leap over to Major League Baseball, but what will happen to the secretaries and the bus drivers mm-hmm. and the concession stand workers and all of these other people? Those were the people that she was concerned about. You know, I don't, I don't think it, it, today sports is this multi-billion dollar industry. And this was happening really at the outset. Like baseball was still trying to get its feet under it. You know, Major League Baseball isn't too far removed from the Black Sox scandal. This is very, very early on. And this is a way for Black people to get in, in the beginning, to build generational wealth and to also provide jobs and income and economic stability for all the people surrounding the team. Effa understood that. Yeah. So we have to come to an end. And I want to say to the listening audience, firstly, what an honor it's been to have both of you here on That Said with Michael Zeldin. But the message to the listening audience is go visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. And (laughs) thank you. Yeah, you're very particular. <laughs> now go over to Wyandotte. Come on back. <laughs> and, and then go buy baseball's leading lady, Effa Manley, and the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues. It's a great read. So thank you both. I'm so honored to have had you with me today. Thank oh, Michael, it's a real pleasure, and it's great to see you, Andrea. Uh, congratulations on a wonderful book project, and continue great success. 
Thank you, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.